Hello, it's time to read the Des Moines Register for today, Tuesday, October 31st, 2023. Happy Halloween, everyone. All material heard on IRIS is intended solely for the use of Iowans with a print disability. I'm Pat Steele, and my partner at the microphone for the next 90 minutes is Deanna Snyder. For the first hour, we'll cover local and national news in the Des Moines Register and USA Today. Our second hour starts with birthdays and obituaries, followed by opinions, sports, and lifestyle news. We'll wrap up our broadcast with Dear Abby. Support for today's reading comes from the Des Moines Register and donations from individuals and listeners like you. Learn how you can keep the volunteer voices of Iris going strong at iowaradioreading.org. Now, before we get to the weather and headlines in today's Des Moines Register, I'd like to read some information regarding the new Iris schedule. At the request of our listeners, Iris is moving airtime to some of our newspapers. The Mason City Globe Gazette and Fort Dodge Messenger have been combined into a one-hour show that you'll hear at high noon. At 1 p.m., it's the Waterloo-Cedar Falls Courier. 2 p.m., the Dubuque Telegraph Herald. The Cedar Rapids Gazette is now on at 3 p.m. each day. At 4 p.m., it's the Sioux City Journal. At 5, you can hear the Council Bluffs Daily Nonpareil. At 6 p.m. is the broadcast of the Des Moines Register, rebroadcast of the Des Moines Register. At 8, you'll hear Midweek, midweek Shopping Cart. At 9 o'clock, it's Time Magazine. At 10 p.m., the Wall Street Journal. And we wrap up our day with the New York Times at 11 o'clock. For the weather here in Iowa today, we're expecting uh, mostly cloudy conditions, windy and cold, wind, uh, strong winds today out of the northwest, 15 to 25 miles per hour. Clear and cold tonight, uh, as the weather forecast says, frightfully frigid, and I guess that's true with Halloween. Tomorrow, a little bit warmer, sunny and breezy, high of 45, and finally back up into the 50s and 60s come Thursday and Friday. Normal high for this time of year is 56 degrees, so we're going to be about 20 degrees below that with our high today, expect to be 34. Uh, normal low is uh, 37. Our record high, 85 back in 1950, and record low, 8 degrees back in 1925. So it could be worse, I guess. Sunrise today, 7.45 a.m., and sunset tonight at 6.11. From the front page or main section of Des Moines Register, we have an article about caucus scores shrug off Trump's legal roles, uh, woes, I should say, and that's a story about the Iowa poll. And then uh, so many things that can make you sick in wells as millions of Americans rely on untested water. From the Metro and Iowa section, Trump asserts that we're going to win Iowa. Iowa will pay $2 million over a pact breach. And Valair Ballroom announces its first show for 2024. So let's look at the weather headlines. Now here is Deanna with our first story. Thank you, Pat. All right, the Iowa poll. I will frightfully read. Caucus scores shrug off Trump's legal woes. 65% say that the ex-president can still defeat Biden. This is from Galen McCarrier of the Des Moines Register. Almost two-thirds of likely Republican caucus-goers say Donald Trump can defeat President Joe Biden, despite his ongoing legal challenges, an indicator of Trump's broad support in Iowa even as he faces court trials, testimony from former allies, and felony charges across four criminal cases. A new Des Moines Register NBC News Mediacom Iowa poll 
asked likely Republican caucus goers for their view on the election effects of Trump's court battles. He faces charges related to the January 6th attack, (coughs) possible election interference in Georgia, classified documents in Florida, and hush money payments in New York. Nearly two-thirds of respondents, 65%, say Trump can win an election against Joe Biden, regardless of his legal challenges. Meanwhile, 32% say his legal challenges will make it nearly impossible for him to win an election against Joe Biden. 4% of respondents say they aren't sure. The poll of 404 likely Republican caucus goers was conducted on October 22nd through the 26th by Seltzer and Company, and has a margin of error of plus or minus 4.9 percentage points. Trump, who remains the frontrunner as the first-choice pick for 43% of likely Republican caucus goers, has retained party support in the face of his legal challenges, even as a majority say they are open to or actively seeking a new leader. Asked about the role of the former president in the future of the Republican Party, 28% of likely GOP caucus goers say Trump was a good president but it is time to consider other leaders. And 32% of the party say the party needs a new leader with a better personal behavior and a different approach. But Trump maintains a plurality of support as the face of the GOP, with 39% of likely GOP caucus goers saying the party should continue to be led by Donald Trump. That mark is similar to that of August's Iowa poll, where 41% of respondents said he should continue to lead the party. Pollster J. N. Seltzer said the findings could indicate a prevailing anti-Biden sentiment among likely Republican caucus scores, even for some who aren't backing Trump as their candidate of choice. Seltzer said anybody who could beat anybody could beat Joe Biden potentially, that's what they may be saying. These data would support the idea that Joe Biden's just not that tough. So, regardless of whether there are legal challenges, Donald Trump can beat him. Nearly all of those who name Trump as their first choice in the caucuses believe his legal challenges won't prevent him from winning the general election, with 94% saying he could win against Biden. Among those who do not name Trump as their first choice, 42% believe he could defeat Biden despite his court challenges. Among supporters of Florida Governor Ron DeSantis, More think Trump can win regardless of what's happening in the courts, 53%, than who say it's nearly impossible to win, which is 40%. Among supporters of former United Nations Ambassador Nikki Haley, the majority, 63%, say it's nearly impossible for Trump to win given legal challenges, with just 35% saying that Trump can win against Biden regardless of legal standing. In August's Iowa poll, Almost two-thirds of likely Republican caucus goers say they didn't believe Trump committed any serious crimes. Unsurprisingly, the vast majority of likely Republican caucus goers who list Trump as their first-choice candidate, 86%, say the GOP should continue to be led by the former president. A majority of those who back DeSantis and Haley are interested in new party leadership, 64% of DeSantis voters say Trump was a good president, but it's time to consider other leaders. And 59% of Haley voters say the party needs a new leader with better personal behavior and a different approach. William Glosser, a 61-year-old poll respondent from Indianola, 
said he didn't necessarily always like the way Trump conducted himself, but that the former president's policy agenda has kept his support ahead of the caucuses. Glosser said, I think it could impact negatively for him, speaking about his court cases, but I also believe that under the current administration, we've gone so far downhill so fast that a lot of people who might have been influenced negatively about these court cases, that may not overshadow the direction we're heading. But Samantha Stokes, a 19-year-old poll respondent from Sioux City, who is supporting DeSantis, said Trump's head is in the wrong place. She believes the former president's legal battles will prevent him from winning. He is obviously worried about all of his lawsuits, which is reasonable, Stokes said, but he's spending too much of his time and resources fighting lawsuits rather than campaigning. That's definitely a problem. Stokes said she believes Trump's established personality and reputation will keep him from winning key groups like young voters and independents. DeSantis, she said, is more likable around people who are independents or undecided. Poll respondent Patty Adrian, age 71, of Davenport, is supporting Haley, choosing her over Trump in part because she supports her policies and likes her demeanor better than Trump's. But she believes either could beat Biden, saying Trump's legal battles are politically motivated. They do anything they can to put him into a bad light, and I think that's part of it, Adrian said. I think they're afraid of him, that he could possibly win again. Pat, back to you. Thank you, Deanne. And on uh, page four, we'll just read this related uh, Iowa poll story as well. 57% in survey don't care if Trump skips debates. Katie Aiken of the Register wrote this article. During a televised debate in late September, Donald Trump's Republican opponents criticized the former president for skipping the forum. Donald Trump is missing in action. He should be on the stage tonight, Florida Governor Ron DeSantis said, arguing Trump owes it to voters to explain his record. But most likely, Republican caucus scores disagree. According to a new Des Moines Register NBC News Mediacom Iowa poll, 57% say it does not matter whether Trump participates in a debate before the January 15th caucus. 42% said they think Trump should participate in at least one debate before caucus night. 1% aren't sure. The poll of 404 likely Republican caucus scores conducted October 22nd through the 26th by Selzer and Company has a margin of error plus or minus 4.9 percentage points. Poll respondents who named Trump as their first choice are less likely than those who support other candidates to think the former president should take the debate stage. 81% of Trump supporters say it doesn't matter if he debates before caucus day. Among likely caucus goers who favor a different candidate, 60% say Trump should debate and 39% say it doesn't matter. Poll respondent Renee Hansen, a retired teacher living in, Tempt in Tipton, who plans to support Trump on caucus day, said she doesn't need a debate to know where Trump stands. Hansen said in a follow-up interview with the Register, he does enough televised rallies and talks about his agenda and how he wants things to go, what needs to happen. He gets his points across quite well through that. Hansen, who is 70 years old, saw Trump in person in July at a Fox News town hall in Cedar Rapids. She said, I liked what he did when he was in office. I felt safe. Our economy was in good shape. He was working for the people. 
But poll respondent Bill Hoekstra of Cedar Rapids said Republican candidates should be willing to debate, to debate including Trump. Hoekstra said it's important for him to be able to talk about his record because he can sit in the sidelines and poke fun at everybody else, but until you're in the fray, that's not fair. Hoekstra, who is 71 years old, plans to support former South Carolina Governor Nikki Haley in January, citing her gubernatorial experience. The Republican National Committee set out strict rules for the primary debates. For each televised event, candidates needed to reach a certain number of donors and meet a polling threshold nationally and in early states like Iowa. Candidates were also required to sign a pledge stating they would support the Republican nominee and would not launch a third-party campaign against the person. Trump, who entered the race as a popular quasi-incumbent, would have easily met the polling and donor benchmarks, but he refused in August to sign the RNC's loyalty pledge. Trump said in an August Newmax interview, Why would I sign it? I can name three or four people that I wouldn't support for president, so right there, there's a problem. Trump skipped the first GOP debate in August, instead posting a pre-recorded one-on-one interview with former Fox News host Tucker Carlson. He wasn't on the stage in September either as he traveled to Michigan to visit a non-union plant during the auto workers' strike. Trump's campaign called on the RNC in October to cancel future debates and refocus its manpower on defeating incumbent President Joe Biden. Trump said he will not participate in any debates. Regardless, the next GOP primary debate will take place in Miami on November 8th, The escalating polling and donor requirements have winnowed the field, and only four candidates have qualified so far. They are DeSantis, Haley, businessman Vivek Vivek Ramaswamy, and former New Jersey Governor Chris Christie. Deanna? Thank you, Pat. All right, so many things that can make you sick in wells. Millions of Americans rely on untested water. This is from Tony Lays out of Fort Dodge. Allison Roderick has a warning and a pledge for rural residents of her county. The water from their wells could be contaminated, but the government can help make it safe. Roderick is the environmental health officer for Webster County in north-central Iowa, where a few thousand rural residents live among sprawling corn and soybean fields. Many draw their water from private wells, which are exempt from most federal testing and purity regulations, Roderick spreads the word that they aren't exempt from danger. More than 43 million Americans rely on private wells, which are subject to patchwork of state and local regulations, including standards for new construction. But in most cases, residents are free to use outdated wells without having them tested or inspected. The practice is common despite concern about runoff from farms and industrial sites, plus cancer-causing minerals that can taint groundwater. You're cooking with it, you're cleaning with it, you're bathing in it, and nowadays there are so many things that can make you sick, said Roderick. Federal experts estimate more than a fifth of private wells have concentrations of contaminants above level cons- levels considered safe. Like many states, Iowa offers aid to homeowners who use well water. The state provides about $50,000 a year to each of its 99 counties to cover testing and help finance well repairs or treatment. 
The money comes from fees paid on agricultural chemical purchases, but about half goes unused every year, according to the Iowa Roderick, who started her job in 2022, aims to spend every penny allotted to her county. Last spring, she snared an extra $40,000 that other counties hadn't used. She promotes the program on, repro, she promotes the program online and by mailing piles of postcards. Traveling the countryside in a hand-me-down SUV from the sheriff's department, she collects water samples from outdoor spigots and sends them to a lab. When she finds contamination, she can offer up to $1,000 of state grant money to help with repairs or up to $500 to cap an abandoned well. Experts urge all users of private wells to have them tested at least annually. Even if wells meet modern construction standards and have tested clean in the past, they can become contaminated as the water table rises or falls and conditions change above them. A faulty septic system or over Application of fertilizer or pesticide can quickly taint groundwater. Too many residents assume everything is fine as long as the water is coming out of the tap and it doesn't smell funny, says Sidney Evans, who is a senior <coughs> excuse me, science analyst for the Environmental Working Group, a national advocacy organization that studies water pollution. The main concerns vary depending on an area's geology and industries. In Midwestern farming regions, for example, primary contaminants include bacteria and nitrates, which can be present in agricultural runoff. In rural Nevada and Maine, arsenic and uranium often taint the water. And throughout the country, concerns are rising about the health effects of PFAS chemicals, widely used products also known as forever chemicals. A recent federal study estimated at least 45% of U.S. tap water contains them. Filters can help ensure safety, but only if they're selected to address the specific problem affecting a home's water supply, Evan said. The wrong filter can give a false sense of safety. Evans said people who wonder about possible contaminants in their area can ask to see test results from wells supplying nearby community water systems. Those systems are required to test their water regularly, and the results should be public, she said. It's a great place to start, and it's free and easy. She also said people who rely on private water wells should ask local health officials about eligibility for help paying for testing and possible repairs or filters. Subsidies are often available, but not publicized, she said. So what do residents really know about a well that ancestors dug? A study by Emory University researchers published in 2019 found that all states have standards for new well construction and that most states require permits for them. However, the researchers wrote, even states with standards for water quality testing, testing is typically infrequent or not conducted at all. Some longtime rural residents live in homes that have been in their families for generations. They often know little about their water source. They'll say, this is the well my grandfather dug. We've used it ever since, and no one's had an issue, said David Courtney, who is director of the University of Iowa's Center for Health Effects of Environmental Contamination. They might not realize that impure water can harm health over time, he said. Some states require inspection and tests of private wells when properties are sold. 
Iowa doesn't mandate such measures, although Webster County does. It's a good idea for homebuyers anywhere to request them, said Eric Day, who oversees the private well program for the Iowa Department of Natural Resources. He also recommends asking for a technician who can run a flexible scope down the well to visually inspect the inside. Day estimated fewer than 10% of Iowa's private well owners have them tested annually, even though testing can be free under the state grant program. The health officer warns old-fashioned, unsealed wells can be just gross. In Webster County, Larry Jones recently took advantage of free well testing at a weathered ranch house that he bought west of Fort Dodge in a subdivision bordering a large soybean field. Jones lives next door to the 54-year-old home, and he's refurbishing it as a place for his relatives to stay. Roderick, the county health official, sampled water from the well and found it was tainted with bacteria. She offered Jones $1,000 from the state grant to help get it fixed. He added a few thousand dollars of his own and hired a contractor. He said, it's an investment for the future. You're talking about your family. The old well was made with a two-foot diameter concrete casing sunk vertically in sections about 60 feet into the ground. A smaller plastic pipe ran down the middle of the casing to water at the bottom. A pump pulled water up through the smaller pipe and into the home. Lynn Rosenquist, who owns a local well repair business, told Jones the well probably was original to the house and likely met standards when it was built, but at least one chunk of concrete had broken off and fallen in. Repairs took two days of heavy work by Rosenquist and his brother Lanny, who are the third generation of their family to maintain wells. The brothers used a backhoe and small crane to remove much of the concrete casing. They replaced it with a narrower PVC pipe, which they sealed with a cement mixture to prevent seepage from the surface. When finished, they shocked the system with a bleach solution and then flushed and tested it again. Such modern construction is less prone to becoming tainted, Roderick said. If it's not sealed airtight, bacteria can get in there, and it's just gross, she said. Grossness is not the only thing Roderick considers. Besides E. coli and other bacteria, she tests for nitrates and sulfates, which can exist in farm and lawn runoff, or come from natural resources, and for arsenic and manganese, which can occur in rock formations. She plans to add tests for PFAS chemicals soon. She collects the water in small plastic bottles, which she mails to a lab. She enters information about each well into a state database. If the tests turn up contaminants, she advises homeowners of their options. Roderick said she enjoys the, the routine. She says, I've met so many people, and I've met a lot of dogs, she said with a laugh. I love the feeling that I'm really helping people. Pat. Well, that's a good story. It's not something I'd ever considered much, so it's good to register had that. Uh, we'll continue with some uh, local news from the front page or main section of Des Moines Register, and this is the uh, candidate articles the Register has been running uh, this month as we approach city and uh, school board elections. Uh, who is running for Johnson City Council? And this is a story written by Philip Sitter of the Register. Three candidates, all incumbents, are vying for three seats in the Johnston City Council, Brian Burkhart, Tom Cope, and Suresh Reddy. The Des Moines Register asked each candidate to respond to questions on why they're running. 
the issues their community is facing, and their answers are maybe lightly edited for clarity or length. The election is uh, next Tuesday, November 7th. Brian Burkhart is the first incumbent running. He's 45 years old. He grew up in northwest Des Moines, the Johnston area, currently lives in Johnston. He graduated from Johnston High School. He has bachelor's and master's in computer engineering from Iowa State University. His political experience, he's been in the Johnston City Council since July of 2021. He was a council liaison to the Johnston Public Library Board of Trustees, Johnston Senior Advocacy Board, Johnston Grime Fire District Fire Board, and the Bravo Board of Directors. Second candidate is Tom Cope. He's 55 years old. He grew up in Aurelia, which is up, I think, in northwest Iowa. Current home is in Johnston. His education, he's a bachelor's in business administration at the University of Iowa and a law degree from Drake University. His political experience, he was elected to Johnson City Council in 2011, 2015, and 2019. He's the current chair of the Metro Advisory Council, which is comprised of mayors and city council members from cities throughout the Des Moines Metro. He serves on the board of Metro Waste Authority, former board member for the Johnston Girls Softball Association, a former board member for Church Preschool, and former church board trustee member, and a Boy Scout Merit Badge instructor. Final candidate in Johnston City Council is Suresh Reddy. He's 57 years old. He grew up in Bangalore, India. Current home is in Johnston. He has a bachelor's degree in electronics and communication engineering, a master's in computer science, and a master of business administration. His political experience, he was on the Johnston City Council since 2019. Volunteer activities include Lego robotics uh, as a coach and a judge, PTO activities, various charity events, and a previous board member on the Johnston Planning and Zoning Commission. So the first question the register posed to these three individuals is, why are you running? Brian Burkhart said, as I wrap up my first term, I am still committed to serving the city and its residents. I feel as though I'm hitting my stride with regard to service in the council, having helped more or move economic development forward, helped resolve litigation regarding water service, helped improve our parks and trails, and helped strengthen our public safety operation. Tom Cope is running because he's proud of the positive things happening in the city of Johnston and want to continue to help keep our city moving forward as well as continuing to build and support our highly skilled city staff. Suresh Reddy is running because the work is not yet done. We have accomplished a lot since I was elected in 2019. We started to work on Ignite, uh, the Ignite uh, Sports Complex, expanded park trails, and lowered property taxes all while talking or taking on a once-in-a-generation pandemic. There's still much left to accomplish, though. One of my goals, should I have the good fortune of being reelected, is to find ways to make the city more walkable. We have new businesses popping up all the time, and increased foot traffic will ensure they thrive in Johnston. Then the register posed this question, what's the biggest issue facing your community and how would you address it? Burkhardt's response was, it is important for Johnston to continue to address new infrastructure and identified growth areas. However, the city must continue to be supportive of thoughtful, sustainable, and suitable redevelopment of existing buildings and areas in more established parts of the city. Use of tax increment financing, grants, reasonable planning, and general economic development advocacy are all effective strategies. 
Cope said the biggest issue facing Johnston is continuing to grow our city in a manner that makes Johnston a great city to live and raise a family, while at the same time ensuring we don't grow in a way that undermines those institutions that give our residents a sense of connection to their neighbors in other parts in the community. According to Reddy, the biggest issue facing Johnston is a byproduct of our success, the stress and strain of managing growth. It is definitely a challenge to keep housing and infrastructure at pace with growth, but it is a challenge we are meeting and will continue to meet. Should I be reelected, I want to seek out more federal and state dollars for infrastructure projects. I want to invest in affordable housing units, and I want to work with DART to expand public transportation. There's also a mayoral race in Johnson this year, and Paula Deerenfield is running for mayor. She's the only candidate, and she's the incumbent. And uh, a little information about her, she's 69 years old. She grew up in Sac City, currently lives in Johnston. Her education, Sac Community High School, 1972. Bachelor of Arts, University of Northern Iowa in 1981. And she got a law degree from Drake University in 1984. Her political experience, uh, Johnston City Council from 2001 to 2007, Johnston Mayor since 2008. Her civic experience includes the Johnston Grimes Metropolitan Fire Department, Chair of the Iowa Gold Star Military Museum, Board of Directors, uh, Des Moines Area Regional Transit Commissioner, Johnston Economic Development Corporation member, Johnston Chamber of Commerce, and member of the Johnston Paya Kosovo Committee. When asked why she is running, she said that several exciting projects are currently underway and we expect them to take shape in the next couple of years. The new Johnston Town Center with its restaurants and retail stores, new city hall, and the yard outdoor community space has been hugely popular. A boutique hotel and more restaurants and retail shops are being added to further build out the town center. South of Merle Hay Road, Bombers Family Entertainment District and Ignite, a 250,000-square-foot sports and fitness facility are under construction. She looks forward to working on these and other great projects over the next two years. When asked the biggest issue facing Johnston, and she said, we must provide the necessary infrastructure to support our growth, including streets, water mains, sanitary, and st storm sewers. The 1,500 acres of land we annexed on Johnston's northwest side in 2018 is now ready for development. A new commercial district has been proposed along Iowa Highway 141 and another just off of 141, 141 along Sailorville Drive. We are actively working with landowners and developers to extend city utilities to serve that area. At the same time, we continue to work with residents on the older parts of town to update and improve the infrastructure in their neighborhoods, including adding sidewalks and trails. When asked the, how the city can balance attracting luxury developments while ensuring there's enough affordable housing for its residents, she said, as a growing community, adequate affordable housing is always in demand. We have a few older houses in Johnston, so new construction has been critical to meeting demand. Over the past decade, we have experienced more diversity in the housing being constructed, single-family houses in different price ranges, more senior housing options, and more multifamily housing, including townhomes and apartments. To make sure the demand is being met for every resident, we will be undertaking a housing study next year to determine what the housing needs are, where are the gaps, 
and how to best address them. So that's Paula Derenfeld running for Johnston mayor, and Deanna, that's a look at the Johnston City Council and mayoral candidates. Back to you. Okay, so I'm supposed to do that, huh? I lost that page. Okay, I'm going to move to Metro in Iowa. <laughs> a headline for Metro in Iowa, We're going to win Iowa, Trump asserts. He tells the Sioux City rally, We really have to go to town. This is from Annie Todd of Sioux City. Former President and current Republican frontrunner Donald Trump confidently told an enthusiastic crowd here, that an Iowa caucus's victory is in the bag despite caucus days still nearly 80 days away. We're going to win the Iowa caucuses, but the big time is in November, he told the packed crowd, wearing hats and flannel jackets at the Orpheum Theater in Sioux City. We really have to go to town. Trump said little more about the caucuses, instead speaking about his standing on the Israel-Hamas war and his pending legal battles. Even a heckler couldn't slow his role. Those in attendance were stopped at six different tables spread across the historic theater's lobby and staircase where volunteers asked if they had signed up to caucus and if they would like to be caucus captains. Attendees also had the chance to snag a green beer koozie with yellow corn decorations saying back-to-back Iowa champ. Before Trump's jumped into the meat of his remarks, he made a small gaffe We've done well here in Sioux Falls, he said, nodding to Iowa's neighbor to the northwest in South Dakota. Trump continued thanking Iowa elected officials for their endorsement as certain audience members shouted for him to remember that he was in Sioux City. Senator Brad Zahn, Republican from District 22, was brought on stage by Trump and spoke about his excitement at being the first person in the country to endorse the former president. When he finished, he quickly pulled Trump in and said something into his ear. And Trump turned to the crowd. Okay, Sioux City, he said, before plowing on with the rest of his speech, including encouraging the number of attendees not from Iowa to call their friends who live in the state and tell them to caucus on January 15th. Ron Anderson, a registered Republican from Sioux City, has caucused four times and voted twice for Trump. I'm that one vote, but that one vote makes a difference, the 70-year-old said about why he thinks caucusing is important. As the Israeli Defense Force continues its push into Gaza on Sunday, three weeks after the Hamas-led attack on the country, Trump doubled down on his contention that the conflict would have never happened if he'd remained in power. He said, Israel is under attack, and now we have terrorist sympathizers chanting their jihad slogans on our streets all over us, he said. We will defend our country, we will defend our Judeo-Christian values, and we will defend Western civilization. Trump wasn't deterred and chose to engage with a man who during the event loudly interrupted the former president while he spoke about the outcome of the 2020 election. How are you going to stop them from cheating when you are president, the man said. He was filming on his phone and yelled at the former president. You couldn't stop it when you were president. How are you going to? Trump told the man that his teams across the country were already watching to stop supposed election stealing. Trump has insisted that the 2020 election was stolen, despite countless audits and court cases saying there was no evidence of fraud that could have come close to changing the outcome that resulted in President Joe Biden's win. Trump said to shouts from the crowd that drowned out the rest of what the hecklers were saying about what he, before he was escorted out by security, if we don't stop the cheating... You're not going to have a country, he said. 
The former president walked a fine line to comply with a gag order put in place by Washington, D.C. judge that bars him from targeting witnesses, prosecutors, or the judge's own court staff relating to charges that Trump attempted to overturn the outcome of the 2020 election. I have one judge in Washington, D.C., who puts my trial date the day before Super Tuesday, he said, and it's a trial based on nothing, he said. It's a form of cheating. Many voters in attendance weren't concerned about Trump's legal woes. Most believed the former president's pending trials across the country for a variety of issues were, in fact, a witch hunt, even though multiple defendants have entered guilty pleas in his conspiracy case in Georgia on election tampering. Trump has, I think, not just the American people, but I think he has God on his side, said Lori Scroggin, a registered Republican from Hartley. And she said, I think God's going to finish what he started. The 62-year-old bookkeeper will still vote for Trump, even if a jury finds Trump guilty of one of the 91 criminal counts he currently faces. Lydia Royard from Sioux City was buzzing with excitement ahead of Trump's speech. While she's a registered Democrat, she plans on voting for Trump. She thinks his policies will help create a safer world for her kids, and she's not worried if he's found guilty of charges. She said people make mistakes and things happen. The 38-year-old retail associate said, if he does the crime, he's going to have to do the time, but I'm going to support him. Pat, back to you. Also from the Metro and Iowa section, Iowa will pay $2 million over a pact breach fined after failing to deduct union duels. Kevin Baskins of the Des Moines Register authored this article. The state of Iowa will have to pay about $2 million in damages to a state employee's union following an Iowa Supreme Court ruling Friday, finding that it failed to honor a contract requirement that it make payroll deductions for union dues. The decision came in a case involving Local 893 of the United Electrical Workers, which goes by the initials UE. The union also prevailed in a previous appeal to the high court from the case, which has stretched over half a decade. In the first ruling in May 2019, the court upheld a district court decision that the union's contract was legal and binding. The state had contested the contract based on a 2017 law change negating collective bargaining rights for all but public safety workers. Both courts found that the pact had been ratified just before the bill was signed into law and therefore remained valid. In Friday's ruling, the court upheld a lower court ruling that the state breached the contract with the union in not deducting union dues from employees' paychecks. UE Local 893 represented about 1,700 state workers in the fields of social services and science with jobs ranging from counselors to geologists and plant pathologists. The bill that ended collective bargaining also banned payroll deductions, and the state contended that despite the contract predating the law, employees needed to turn in new authorization cards for the payroll deductions to, concur to occur. But in oral arguments before the court in September, the union's attorney, Charles Gibble, contended that pre-existing authorization cards like the ones about 1,000 of the workers UE represented, signed in 2017, never expire. Only the employee can revoke the authorization. The court agreed with Justice David May writing in the unanimous ruling, the parties agree that throughout their long history of bargaining for the science in social service units, the state has never before taken the position 
that union members have to present new authorization cards at the start of each new two-year contract period, May wrote. Rather, the state has always honored authorization cards entered in prior contract terms. This supports UE's view that the parties had indeed agreed that dues authorizations would be durable from contract term to contract term, so no new authorizations were required at the beginning of the 2017 through 2019 term. When the state stopped taking out the money, UE Local 893 paid a contractor called Union Track to collect dues from members. The company charged the union about $35,000, and the union paid another $7,000 in credit card processing fees. Union Track collected about $395,000 from members, about $1 million less than what the UE Local 893 would have received if the state had continued payroll deduction, according to court documents. Gibble said that left the union without the ability to meet its obligations, causing it to have to reduce staff and assign more work to fewer people. Overall, the total award to union will be about $2 million, which includes $1.046 million in damages and close to $1 million for back pay and overtime owed to workers covered by the contract. The only setback for the union was that in the Friday ruling, as in the 2019 case, the court decided the state was not responsible for paying the union's attorney fees upholding a lower court ruling. Gibble said the case was unusual for the length of time it took to reach a final decision, but that the union was happy with the outcome. We are very pleased. This has been a long battle, said Gibble, who has been a labor attorney since 1975. The Iowa Attorney General's office did not respond to an email seeking comment. Deanna? Thank you, Pat. Okay, a couple of brief articles. The first from on the front page of Metro in Iowa, Valair Ballroom announces the first show for 2024. This is from Paris Barraza of the Des Moines Register. After months of renovations, the 84-year-old historic Valair Ballroom will reopen in West Des Moines with bluegrass in Friday. In February, I'm sorry. String band, and I, I've almost misread this. It's green sky bluegrass. I almost read green ski. <laughs> green sky bluegrass. A string band will perform at the Valair Ballroom on February 29th as part of their 2024 winter tour. This will be the first show for the venue since it closed for renovations in December of 2022, according to a post on social media. The Valair Ballroom has undergone a $14.5 million renovation that includes a bar and grill, new bathrooms, and returning its appearance to something akin to its looks in the 1950s, the Des Moines Register reported earlier this year. Sam Summers owns the venue as well as the Hinterland Music Festival, concert promotion and booking company First Fleet Concerts, and Woolies in the East Village. Green Sky Bluegrass, which formed in Michigan in 2000, are behind the songs Past My Prime, Windshield, and Forget Everything. Albums If Sorrows Swim from 2014 and 2019's All for Money both charted at number one on Billboard's Bluegrass Albums chart. The Bluegrass Quintet is made up of Anders Beck, Michael Arlen Bont, David Bruza, Mike Duvall, and Paul Hoffman. The show starts at 7 p.m. at the Valar Ballroom, 
301 Ashworth Road in New West Des Moines, and tickets go on sale November 3rd at 10 a.m. on AXS.com. Access to Greenwood Park's big art piece and rec area are restricted. This is from Paris Barraza. Visitors at Greenwood Park in Des Moines will no longer have access to portions of a large art installation that doubles as an outdoor recreational area. The Des Moines Art Center announced on social media and in a news release that Greenwood Pond Double Site, designed by artist Mary Miss and in collaboration with Des Moines and several nonprofits, is undergoing a structural review. As a result, visitors will not have access to some of the wooden structures that made up the piece of art that was completed in 1996. Greenwood Pond Double Site features a pavilion with a warming house and arched structures, wooden pathways, an observation tower, and a walkway into the small body of water at the park, accessible off 45th Street in Des Moines and past the Art Center. The warming house and bridge have been closed off while some of the arched structures will be dismantled as future plans are considered, according to the news release. The structural review of the site comes as part of the Art Center's responsibility to maintain its collections. A timeline to reopen access to Greenwood Pond double site has not been determined, according to the news release. Pat. Thank you, Deanna. Elsewhere in the uh, Metro Iowa section, Altoona paramedics deliver second baby of 2023. This is just right off of Interstate 80. Addison Lathers of the Des Moines Register wrote this article. The Altoona Fire Department helped deliver a second baby this year, this time on the shoulder of Interstate 80. According to Deputy Fire Chief Jay Pratt, crews were first called to help the woman in labor at an Altoona apartment complex around noon. Paramedics assessed the situation and, believing they had enough time to transport the woman, put her into a waiting ambulance before making the way to a Des Moines hospital. Only, they didn't get very far. Mother Nature and the mother herself decided that the initial time frame we thought we were seeing on the scene was going to be escalated, Pratt said. Young baby boy was ready to enter the world. The paramedics pulled over on the side of Interstate 80 westbound near the Highway 65 exit to deliver the child. The woman delivered a baby boy in the back of the ambulance. While the fire department hasn't formally followed up with the mother since transporting her to the hospital, Pratt said the pair were healthy when they left the paramedics' care. The baby, he added, was very cute. The chief said that the department hadn't had to deliver a baby, let alone two, in a very long time. This year has been very unique. Prior, it's been several years since a baby was born to the Altoona Fire Department. It doesn't happen a lot, but this is one of these events where it was time for our crew to carry out what they trained for. Elsewhere in the register, single vehicle crash victim identified as 70-year-old. The victim of a single vehicle crash in North Des Moines on Friday has been identified as Carl Lewis, Carl Lewis D'Artez, age 70, of Carlisle. D'Artez was driving a 2012 Toyota Tacoma heading west on Euclid Avenue. D'Artez then crossed into the eastbound lanes and ultimately left the roadway. He struck multiple hazards, including concrete barriers and a tree before going down a small embankment and coming to a stop. He was found in critical condition and transported to a hospital where he died. The Des Moines Police Department Traffic Unit is investigating the crash. 
In another traffic uh, crash, victim of crash near Loves and Clive was a Waukee resident age 26. The person killed in that crash near the travel stop in Clive has been identified as Dayton Bernal of Waukee. As previously reported by the register, arriving personnel find Bernal, who was riding a motorcycle, had been thrown from his bike. He was pronounced dead at the scene. Further information from an Iowa State Patrol crash report says that Bernal failed to stop at a red light heading east on Hickman Road near 80, Interstate 8035. A Chevy Silverado pickup going through a green light broadside of Bernal's motorcycle in a crash is still being investigated by the Iowa State Patrol. Deanna. Thank you, Pat. All right, from page 6 of the main section, Michigan dispute is now free speech test. At issue is how officials communicate with the public. This is from John Fritzy of U.S. Today. Dateline, Washington. James Freed, the city manager in Port Huron, Michigan, remembers the first time the follower posted a comment on his Facebook page. There were no words. There were just three weird, smiley faces. Creepy, Freed recalled. When I saw the smiley faces, I knew who this was. The poster Freed knew was Kevin Linke, whom the local newspaper, the Times-Herald, describes as a social media figure. Linke describes himself as an advocate who goes after public officials he believes are unethical and dishonest. After Linke criticized Freed's handling of the COVID-19 pandemic in another comment, Freed had enough. And so Freed blocked Linke from his Facebook page. The dispute between the two men sits at the center of a case before the Supreme Court and could lead to a ruling that sets the terms for how voters nationwide communicate with and criticize public officials on social media. The smiling emojis weren't creepy, Linke says. They were activism, and they were protected by the First Amendment. That's just him trying to make me look bad, said Linke. Everything I'm doing is basically to give a voice to the people who don't have one. The Supreme Court will hear oral arguments in the case and another raising the same question on Halloween. Civic dialogue increasingly takes place on social media, but it's a context where the boundaries between what's personal and what's official are much blurrier, said Evelyn Danforth Scott, a staff attorney at the American Civil Liberties Union, which is siding with Linke in the case. Getting this distinction right is critical. It ensures that government officials cannot evade constitutional limits like the First Amendment and the Equal Protection Clause by claiming to be acting in their personal capacity, said Danforth Scott. So, raccoon and dog pictures, are they a state action? Freed created his Facebook page in college sometime before 2008 and over the years posted the everyday life sort of humdrum that billions of people share on the site, raccoons in his garbage, his dog's birthday, family pictures. About a decade ago, Freed reached the site's 5,000 friend limit and converted his account to a public page, that's in quotes. No other city employees had access to it, and he posted to the site on his own time. If I thought this was a public page, not private, I would never have posted photos of my kids. I would never have posted what I ate for dinner, you know, said Freed, who was hired as Port Huron's city manager in 2014. I believe more than 80% of the posts are all family stuff. 
But it wasn't all family stuff. Sometimes Freed reposted press releases from the city fire department. He occasionally answered constituent questions about city services. One post, a picture of Freed and the mayor ordering takeout from a local restaurant in the early days of the pandemic, really bothered Linke. He said, it's a very nice little cafe, but it's a little bit more expensive. When everyone in the community is trying to figure out how they're going to pay their mortgage and put food on the table, it just rubbed me the wrong way. The question for the Supreme Court is whether public officials who have their own social media presence are acting in their official capacity when they post to these sites. Alex Abdo, who is litigation director at the Knight First Amendment Institute at Columbia University, said, The cases focus very narrowly on the question of state action. When is a government official acting as a government official, as opposed to a private citizen? He said, It's a threshold question, but a very important one. How Biden-Trump factor into this cancel case. It's not the first time the question has been raised in the Supreme Court in 2017. In 2017, former President Donald Trump brought a similar case to the justices when he blocked users following his account on what was then called Twitter, now X. Seven users went to court, charging that Trump was seeking to suppress dissent. A federal appeals court in New York sided against Trump in 2019, but the Supreme Court said in 2021 that the case was moot, since the Republican had by then left the White House, and it tossed the lower court's decision. The current case, Linke v. Freed, is one of several pending before the Supreme Court that examine the intersection of social media and the government. In one set of cases, the court will decide if Texas and Florida violated the First Amendment with laws that limit the ability of platforms like Facebook, YouTube, and X to moderate content. In another case, the court will decide if White House officials and federal agencies violated the First Amendment when they leaned on social media companies to suppress election and COVID-19 content. The Sixth U.S. Circuit Court of Appeals in Cincinnati sided with Freed last year, ruling that his Facebook page was personal. President Joe Biden's administration also backs Freed in a brief filed by the Justice Department. Despite the years-long fight between Freed and Linke, the two men agree the Supreme Court's opinion, expected next year, should bring needed clarity about how much control public officials have over their social media presence. Pat. Thank you, Deanna. Continuing with the front page uh, section of the Des Moines Register, on page 8A, three foreigners among the 48 dead after Hurricane Otis. This is a story from the Associated Press, and Dateline is Mexico City. Officials in Mexico said Monday that three foreign residents were among at least 48 people killed when Hurricane Otis hit the resort city of Acapulco last week. Local prosecutors say the dead included one American, one Canadian, and one from England, adding that they had been living in Acapulco for some time and were not considered tourists. Meanwhile, the Navy said the search effort will now focus on finding possible bodies among the 29 boats known to have sunk in Acapulco Bay the night the hurricane hit. Navy Secretary Admiral Jose Rafael Hojeda said the boats had been located and authorities were waiting for a ship equipped with a crane to lift the wrecks out of the water. Alcapoco is both known for its abundant 
expensive yachts and the cheap tour boats that carried tourists around the bay. Otis roared ashore early Wednesday with devastating 165-mile-per-hour winds after strengthening so rapidly that people had little time to prepare. Local residents reported that some crews had either chosen or been ordered to stay aboard to guard their craft. The government reported Sunday that at least 48 people died when the Category 5 hurricane slammed into Mexico's southern Pacific coast. Mexico's Civil Defense Agency said that 43 of the dead were in the resort city of El Capoco and five in the nearby township of Coja de Benetes. President Andres Manuel López Obrador said Saturday that his opponents are trying to inflate the toll to damage him politically, but with hundreds of families still awaiting word from loved ones, it's likely to keep rising. In Acapulco, families told, held funerals for the dead on Sunday and continued the search for essentials while government workers and volunteers cleared streets clogged with muck and debris left by the hurricane. During a short time outside a local morgue on Sunday morning, at least a half dozen families arrived, some looking for relatives, others identifying bodies, and some giving statements to authorities. The somber convoys of hearses and relatives crossed much of battered El Capoco en route to the cemetery, passing ransacked stores, streets strewn with debris, and soldiers cutting away fallen trees. Christian Vera who owns a small fishing boat, said Saturday that some of the people who died were either fishermen caring for their boats or yacht captains who were told by their owners to make sure the boats were okay as Otis approached as a tropical storm. Officials from the National Electric Company promised to have power restored in all of Acapulco by late Tuesday, a full week after the hurricane hit. Aid has been slow to arrive. The storm's destruction cut off the city of nearly one million people for the first day, and because Otis had intensified so quickly on Tuesday, little to nothing had been uh, staged in advance. The Federal Defense Agency tallied 220,000 homes that were damaged by the hurricane, which blew out the windows and walls of some high-rise hotels and ripped the tin roofs off thousands of homes. Dan, I think we have time for one more story before birthdays. All right, don't be too emotional about stock market dips. This is from Bailey Schultz of USA Today. If you're taking a nervous peek at your 401k following the stock market's recent plunge, you're not alone. The S&P 500 ended last week down more than 10% from its most recent high in July, which put the stock index in correction territory, a worrying milestone for millions of Americans who invest in one of the many mutual funds that use the index as a benchmark, mirroring its performance. The index, which includes 500 of the leading publicly traded companies in the U.S., ended at $4,117 on Friday, down 10.3% from its recent peak on July 31st. The tech-heavy NASDAQ Composite Index, which entered correction territory earlier in the week, closed at $12,643. Stocks have fallen the past three months as investors face the reality of higher interest rates, with Federal Reserve officials talking about keeping rates higher for longer, while the plunge in the S&P 500 may have people fretting over their 401k's performance, market experts say investors should keep in mind that dips are often short-lived. On Monday, in fact, investors appeared more optimistic, pushing up major stock indexes. Although the last three months haven't been for investors, it's important to remember that corrections are normal, and they happen quite often, said Ryan Dietrich, 
Chief Market Strategist at Financial Services from Carson Group.